Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast. My guest today is a political theorist and historian, former speechwriter of President of European Council, Hernan Bergompuy, the author, among others, The Passage to Europe, Alar Urgence, Le Reveil Geopolitique de l'Europe, and recently uh, also Pandemonium Saving Europe, which was just published in Polish by Liberté. Luc van Midler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Leszek. Very pleased to be on the podcast and also very pleased that my most recent book has been published in Polish. It's a real honor. Right. So I will I will use this opportunity because I know that we also have uh, listeners in Poland. Then our our conversations will be also translated and and written down into into Polish. So we'll start with uh, um, with pandemonium uh, because as we all know, the COVID hasn't disappeared. I think it is very much present uh, in most of the Europe's capitals. So. Uh, what do you has learned about itself from the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think the basic lesson the EU learned was again that at the moment of, of great vulnerability and the moment of division among member states, remember really the start of the COVID outbreak uh, in, of course, uh, February, uh, early March 2020, when there was a scramble for medical material, uh, all member states, Paris, Berlin, and others, uh, keeping the stuff for themselves. Everybody was trying to, of course, save their own citizens uh, while patients were gasping for for oxygen, right? But so this started with a very bitter moment, as has happened in previous crises uh, as well, of divisions, recriminations. Uh, lack of solidarity, but there was, in a way, a very surprising turnaround relatively swiftly in the sense that in a matter of two or three months, European leaders took two very far-reaching decisions, one on the medical front and one on the economic front. On the medical front, it was a decision that EU Commission was given the mandate to buy, to purchase the vaccines for all EU citizens. So if you remember those days, uh, it was all very bleak. Uh, people were afraid. There was this deep uncertainty about this uh, virus. And the vaccine was in those days kind of, yeah, maybe the one hope we had, the light at the end of the tunnel. And then for, for national leaders to outsource the task of this life-saving uh, drug, medication, vaccine rather, to the European Commission was 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 quite quite a decision, and they did so in in June uh, 2020 because they realized, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel was was very clear on this, that it was really important to do this together huh, as a union because otherwise these uh, scenes of divisions and everybody going uh, for themselves would be repeated. Now, of course, the other very far-reaching, almost revolutionary decision just a month later in the summer of 2020, July 2020, is when EU leaders decided on the Corona Recovery Fund, the 750 billion of uh, EU uh, financial aid to governments 
societies which had be, been hit by the the COVID crisis and where in a way the EU was, was crossing a number of uh, red lines, especially from the the old style German point of view, with something the Corona bonds coming quite close to 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 Euro bonds in the sense that uh, there is now collective debt taken up by by the EU. So to cut it short, a moment of deep vulnerability uh, where the EU did show unexpected uh, resilience and um, perhaps and this confirmed in my view what we've seen in the earlier crisis uh, as well uh, the euro crisis is maybe the the clearest example that that really when push comes to to shove there is a kind of unexpected energy resilience that that can be mobilized for the eu to to pull through so that was a big lesson right and the other thing which strikes me as as very important in in the pandemonium as i call it in the covid crisis is the role the public opinions played in the political decision making and that is almost new because it, it was really a public call for action uh, a public call in particular at the beginning from Italy, which was hit early on by the virus. Remember huh? Bergamo and, and places like that in Northern Italy, which, which were really the center of the COVID outbreak in, in, in the winter of 2020, but also Spain, where public opinions wanted Europe to act. And even if technically, formally, legally speaking, the EU as such does not have all the competences in the field of public health as the official language goes the public reason well well that's too bad and then you better change it right so there was a call for political action which drove the decision making and that was new if you compare to early crisis again like the euro crisis where it was pretty much also very far-reaching and unpopular decisions that that had to be taken like austerity measures in, in countries of southern Europe or solidarity that had to be um, mobilized by countries in, 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 in northern and, and to some extent central and eastern uh, Europe among the Eurozone members and which was really a top-down decision-making. Government leaders were told by experts, by economists, by central bankers that they had to take action and otherwise there would be financial Armageddon and then they had to push through these very unpopular measures to their parliaments to convince very reluctant public opinions. But here in, in COVID, in the pandemic, it was not top down, it was more bottom up, bottom up. There was really a, a, a call for action, which, which resonated very much, for instance, with Angela Merkel, whom I mentioned already, and who realized that Germany could not afford in this crisis again to be the kind of scrooge uh, of the mm. of the plot of, of story only focusing on 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 discipline on everybody doing uh, his or her homework but germany had to step in to provide solidarity with uh, italy and spain uh, in particular 
This is, uh, well, c comparing those, you're doing this constantly in your book. It's not just a book about the COVID, um, but in, in, well, responding to to different kinds of crises on European scene and also about the politics of events and and the way that the kind of political is being made uh, in European Union. So it, it has very different aspects. But one, one of the things that is striking is that very different response of the, well, basically very same people, well, basically Angela Merkel and to the different Euro crisis and to the COVID crisis. And you're, you also wrote that the rhetorics or narrative of solidarity of the South uh, of Europe became stronger. It kind of won the narrative battle. And this is what people called from, well, different countries also, uh, even in some of the frugal four countries, people were calling for solidarity it was more um, kind of natural in the case of COVID than it was of the of the euro. And German response to the uh, European bonds, uh, well, it was unimaginable, I think, uh, before before COVID. Do you think that this is um, because this this kind of turnaround, this different approach, was it due to the fact that well, COVID was kind of Deus ex machina, something well, not really well. At the first, uh, well, I mean, first of all, it, it stroke countries in a very similar way, and it wasn't the kind of self-inflicted wound. It was something that came from the outside, and this is why this exception, as Angela Merkel called, of of eurobonds uh, for for COVID was possible. Or do you think that it was the lesson learned from the? from the euro crisis when the, the, the Greece went almost bankrupt and were, were forced to, to leave the, the eurozone. How do you think this, why do you think this response was now much more timely and efficient? I think the, the strongest reason the, the response came, came faster and, and in a more convincing manner this time around was because of the nature of the crisis, that it was a public health crisis. People were dying in 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 elderly homes and in, in hospitals, and and hundreds of people were were dying in certain countries in those days. So it was just the sheer magnitude of human suffering, which made this argument of of solidarity so much stronger, because of the the very let's say almost bodily nature of this crisis, as opposed to of course, something like the euro crisis, it was also really serious and, and it was about people's wages and, and pensions, but still it was a little bit more abstract. So here was a very powerful drive of, of human emotion and empathy and solidarity. And then, as you rightly say, Leszek, what, what made this uh, politically translatable for the German chancellor in particular, was to say, well, this is a crisis which is hitting everybody symmetrically. That's a word that came up a lot. Uh, so in a similar manner, as you said, we, we're we all hit by it. And it isn't really the fault of Italy of having been ill-prepared uh, that it happened to be uh, the place where the virus uh, from, from China and other roads landed. And um, I think these two elements were, were strongest. And of course, it was backed up, as you rightly say, by by expert opinion on the mistakes made during the euro crisis when the um, language of and the discourse of, 
of uh, of discipline of austerity and severity was was much stronger and and that points to a certain changes in in german public opinion or export expert opinion in in the past 10 years but i think that was more the the backing up the the, the primary impulse of coming to the rescue of people who were dying that that basically was what made this crisis so uh, special for for somebody uh, like like angela merkel i think who who felt this keenly and and she was able also i mean she herself took the decision that on behalf of germany she engaged for these corona bonds basically but the whole of german public opinion was with her in a matter of days which is very surprising uh, even somebody like like wolfgang schauble uh, the the finance minister during much of the euro crisis who was a kind of bogeyman in much of uh, southern europe and in, in in greece and the counterpart of uh, of uh, yanis varoufakis for instance he, within a matter of days uh, schäuble who was then uh, president of the german parliament said it was perfectly normal to uh, give uh, grants basically rather than loans to people who were struck because as he said in in almost old testamental language uh, otherwise it would uh, be like giving stones instead of bread which would in the sense that it would only increase uh, the debt so so there was a very strong emotional undercurrent of of these uh, decisions which uh, i found very striking at least you wrote um you, you wrote about uh well your book i think was published in 2021 right in in original and you write there about the four different crises um before COVID. so about the financial debt crisis uh well ukrainian or let's say we might also call it like a russian crisis russian invasion first russian russian invasion crisis 2014 2015 migrant crisis 2015 2016 and then kind of atlantic brexit and trump crisis uh which lasted from 2016 until 2020 and then there is COVID, uh which you describe in detail which started in 2020 and it's not well I don't know if we can call it. I think we it might carry on. We don't know. This winter we'll see. And 2022, we we started with a new, uh, well, much more serious Russian invasion uh, in Ukraine crisis. So counting from 2008, we have we had just two brief years in which there was no crisis. And I'm wondering if you if you if we call it a crisis, but we might. Uh, simply had to adjust to a new reality and that we had this hard time adjusting because we subconsciously expect a, some kind of return to normalcy, whatever it is. Do you think that we can and should still call this events crisis or is it simply a new world and we have to try to live up to it with, you know, and adjust to it? Well, I, I, I agree with the uh, suggestion that it is a new world and and what you could speak of as a kind of acceleration of history since 2008 which i would take as a as a starting point of course it's always a little bit arbitrary uh, where you draw a line of, between one era 
and another but 2008 after all is is the year of uh, Lehman Brothers and the the, the financial uh, the collapse almost of the financial system. It's also the year of the first uh, skirmishes, comparatively speaking, uh, with the August war between uh, Russia and, and Georgia, and also a year when, when China's uh, emergence as, as a global uh, power was very visible, for instance, with the Summer Olympic Games in, 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 in Beijing. And it's true that since then, Europe has experienced a series of shocks of various nature, economically, geopolitically, issue, issues around borders with, with migration. Uh, and I think there is no end in sight. And of course, then it's a question of, of semantics. What do we still keep talking about the crisis? But I think the important thing is that we have to, as Europeans, as uh, as, as Poles and, uh, and Germans and, and Greeks and so on, to be ready for that world ahead of us, uh, knowing that we will be struck by further acts of uh, aggression, uncertainty, uh, be it from the side of uh, China, Russia, uh, who knows, uh, the United States, uh, in a kind of reenactment of what we have seen during the Trump seen during the Trump administration, and we need to shed off a kind of naivete, naivety of uh, of our outlook as Europeans, where we thought that we could ban the language of power and interests and strategy, because we, as EU in particular. Uh, we're going to build a new world which was free of all those elements of power and strategy and that of course was was a big mistake and and what we are now seeing is that there's uh, these naive views are 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 being uh, utterly undercut and the ukraine war since february 22 is of course the most dramatic uh and and therefore, I'm afraid to say also the most convincing example that we need to live up to to this new uh, world and, and better get ready for it. But the interesting thing is, if I may check that, mm -hmm. even in, in, in the responses to uh, this new crisis, we, we, can, we can feel that some of the experiences and lessons learned uh, from, from previous episodes in a way, um, are being taken on board. And, and some of the responses to uh, the Ukraine war by the EU have been, uh, have come about uh, more swiftly and, 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 and more convincingly because of these earlier experiences of vulnerability. Very concrete example also. Uh, earlier at, at the beginning, we, we talked about this at the time, very radical decision for the EU to jointly purchase the vaccine hmm, to uh, bring the COVID outbreak under control. Now, in this new crisis, the idea came up among national leaders, knowing that they would be faced with shortages on, on energy and, and gas in particular. Well, why don't we ask in the same pattern, why don't we ask the uh, the European Commission to to help efforts uh, of companies because of course at the end it's still a, a private business purchase 
a gas collectively for those member states who are interested. And um, that is just one example, but it shows that something which, which in the first occurrence takes a lot of persuasion and time uh, to come about as, as a collective decision, then is in a way is part of the part of the stock, part of the treasure trove of common experiences uh, which you can draw upon. And I also noted the other day there was a, a comment by B, uh, the head of the uh, German energy uh, agency, and which was about the uh, issue of saving gas for the winter and how that would be possible if we ask people basically to, to turn down the temperature with a few degrees uh, in the winter without uh, having police agents uh, knocking on every door. And the argument he made, I, I thought was, was interesting. He said, well, it, it will be just like during, the, during COVID. Huh? People, yeah. individual citizens will uh, take their part of responsibility in, in contributing to a collective goal uh, of either uh, uh becoming less dependent on russian gas in in this current case or in collectively um coming on on, on top of the COVID outbreak in in the previous one well that's that's interesting comparison since i'm not so sure that this feeling of solidarity includes ukraine to the extent that it included the the other eu member states i mean now i think it's perhaps this this outbreak of solidarity is immense is, is is being felt but i'm not so sure that it, it it might last that long but i wanted to i wanted to ask you about about the the response you already mentioned this to some extent of the eu to the to the russian invasion do you think that the leaders because you you, you say uh, one part of the story that the commission which is usually uh well delegated to do stuff that is either difficult to to be solved politically, uh, or sometimes it's just easier if common issues are dealt with with by dealt with uh, by by the commission. But at the same time, uh, I think uh, it is uh, it is kind of your speciality to write about the politics of events. And when the kind of real issues uh, comes up, come up, the the political leaders have to step in into the stage and take over and. Uh, and uh, so I'm wondering, do you think that in a way um, it didn't happen this time and so strategic autonomy of which there was so much talk in the recent years since now Trump was elected didn't materialize on the part of the of the um, European states, at least in terms of common uh, approach to, to Ukraine crisis? Or perhaps you might disagree. I'm, I'm wondering how would you how would you describe the response so far? On part of the non, on not not you as such perhaps, but on the main European states. Well, I think the response has been fairly uh, united, seeing very different starting points and also uh, different levels of exposure uh, and interdependence with Russia. I mean, uh, if you take Great Britain on the one hand, the UK. And and uh, and Germany on the other hand, and France is a little bit in in the middle between these two. Uh, if you uh, want to sketch how they position themselves vis-à-vis uh, -vis Russia and being gas dependent, the UK being on the together with the 
Baltic states and, and to some extent Poland, I presume, in a very uh, supportive uh, to, to, to Ukraine with weapon deliveries, etc. Some would say more hawkish, whereas uh, Germany's dependence on Russian uh, gas has, 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 has been ex exposed. And France has also, as it so often does, uh, tried to play a role as a diplomatic actor with uh, President Macron believing until very long into the game that a diplomatic solution uh, could be uh, found. So this is in a way, it is unsurprising. And um, because there are, there are always these kind of, on, of continuities. I think Italy was a very surprising actor uh, under the leadership of Prime Minister Draghi. Uh, Italy is, is about as uh, was about as dependent on Russian gas as uh, as Germany, and, and nevertheless, uh, Draghi took took a very firm uh, line, not immediately, but very fairly early on uh, as regards to to sanctions and on becoming independent from Russian gas. Now, for Italy, of course, there will be elections at the end of September, and, and we will have to see what, what happens uh, then, because there are still um, some pro, more pro-Russian or pro-peace, as they would say, strands in Italian uh, public opinion. But all in all, uh, seeing how these various uh, stances and interests and, 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 and values come together in EU decision-making, I think uh, what the level of uh, support for Ukraine has been unprecedented. Don't forget it, it culminated in the decision to, to grant Ukraine candidacy status to the EU at the June uh, European summit, uh, which was something that um, would never have happened uh, in January 22, uh, before the war, and it was really under the impulse of the war and a beleaguered country knocking at the door of the EU that leaders decided to to open that door and to offer that that prospect. Now we will see indeed it may it may take a very long time for actual membership to be achieved by Ukraine, but as a as an act, it is not just a symbolic act because it is a true promise which cannot be backtracked upon. And um, I think that that was a very uh, in a way, maybe um, also very well played. I mean, earlier we, we, we talked about the battle of narratives between solidarity and, and discipline, right, in the COVID crisis or in the Euro crisis. But in, in this dramatic story of, of the Russia war, it is, it is safe to say that uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky has, has masterfully won the narrative battle in, uh, in Europe. That's some minorities aside, especially on the extreme right or the nationalist right, and Hungary, in Hungary, uh, I'm afraid to say as well, even at the level of the government, which which remain more prone to to Russian propaganda. But the overall, the story which is shared by the media all across Europe, by public opinions, is of of a, I think, rather heartfelt solidarity with Ukraine. 
Well, yeah, I, I think on this level, I, I quite agree. What, what I see the division is that you have this, well, you see a far call is like the justice camp and versus the peace camp, which is mm -hmm. a little bit unfair because I see basically the countries who feel endangered by the potential invasion or feel direct threat from Russia in the EU, well, Poland, Baltics, perhaps Romania to some extent, and the countries who are afraid of escalation and I think will be willing to end the war if possible, um, as quickly as possible. And there are countries, kind of Atlantic camp, UK, US and, and, and well, Poland, who, who are interested in Ukraine fighting until it wins. And I think this division is, is, is being felt, but of course it's not, uh, at least so far, I think the countries in, in EU remain united, but also, you know, sending weapons is, is uh, there was a talk of the EU supporting Ukraine directly, I think, uh, Borrell made this, well, this, he called uh, perhaps prematurely about sending some of the, well, Polish aircraft and so on. But um, it seems to me that in some ways you has been caught by the surprise. And I think it's perhaps inevitable, you write about it, that you is, can respond to the crisis when it happened, but it cannot, in a way, predict a new crisis and be prepared. And I'm wondering, because we will have to uh, start wrapping up, do you think that that could change so that you can become a geopolitical player? Because you, when you write in your last chapter about, especially about the China, uh, that COVID uh, made the public opinion realize that you has to play this role because it's of the very vital, well, it's of existential nature. This is a question of, of life and death, whether you'd be able to get the, uh, in this case, uh, the, well, the, the, the face masks, for example, and, and later on to, to get the vaccines. And this is important that the, the, the whole EU can, can, can you know, defend itself. Also, I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine, even if if you is not NATO, I think it, it shows that uh, well, you have to be has to be prepared to to respond to this kind of threats as well. So I'm wondering, do you think that this politics of doom, when we are uh, the political leaders and political elites are are trying to 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 frighten everyone that okay, this is the crisis, existential crisis. If you don't respond, we we all gonna die, and 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 they adapt. Do you think that now it will be different and the public opinion will kind of force political leaders to 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 be think more geopolitically uh, about you as such? And there is like that you can not longer be uh, economic giants and and geopolitical dwarf that that this this lessons will be learned from COVID and from the and from the Russian invasion. The short answer is, is yes, uh, I do think that uh, European public opinions are much more keenly aware of how vulnerable our societies are. I mean, as you say, we have experienced it with face masks and now it is uh, gas and energy. So there is much more political space for leaders to, to rally and to persuade their public opinions and, and, and parliaments and so on to take action before it is too late. And that is important because, or to take action before we are really in front of the abyss, basically. Because that is what happened uh, very often uh, in the recent past and what you refer to as, as the politics of doom, where really things have to 
go to the very end, to, to the level of an existential threat of uh, a local financial problem in Greece, in a way almost engulfing the whole of uh, the European Monetary Union for, before action is, is taken. And that approach is uh, risky because then we will in the end always be too late. And I think there is now more space in public opinion and therefore more, more political space to look ahead, to be more strategic about issues like energy, which we have been discussing, uh, about industrial policy, uh, which is another big topic which has been changed under the double pressure of the COVID crisis, crisis and, 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 and the Ukraine war, which is changing the relationships between uh, state and market in, in, in quite dramatic terms. Think about the EU Chips Act, sorry, which uh, mirrors also the American uh, Chips Act, and where public authorities are, are realizing that to basically to survive and prosper in a world where we can no longer rely on global uh, supply chains, we have to organize ourselves uh, as a bloc, in, in, in the case of Europeans, as a, as a union, to, to weather these uh, storms ahead. And I do personally hope, and I'm, and I'm happy to, to continue writing and talking <laughs> to, mm. to contribute my, my little uh, bit to, uh, to this, that, that we can act as Europeans more strategically and that we are no longer systematically outwitted, be it by the Russians, the Chinese or the, the Trumpian Americans. Well, I think it's a, it's a good note to end and please read Pandemonium. You know, it's in, in Milton's Paradise Lost. It is the capital of Satan and his peers. So I think even some Eurosceptics might consider it a little bit uh, overstated, critique of Brussels, but of course it's not. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's well, really very readable accounts of of the recent COVID crisis and also of the different ways in which politics is being made. I think uh, uh, all of your, your, your books tell the story uh, that politics is happening in, in, in Brussels and especially in the national capitals with regards to the, to the European crisis. And what I personally like is this kind of link with the, with the history and politics that doesn't feel like the, the EU is somewhere outside the, the realm of mm -hmm. um, of you know, European history because it sometimes it's felt this way. Uh, so even if you are not if you are fed up with COVID, please please do read Pandemonium in Dutch, English, or in Polish if you prefer. Uh, Luba thank you so much for for being with us on Liberal Europe podcast. Thank you for your for the conversation, Leszek. It was a pleasure. Talk soon. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, that's all for me for this for this week. Please tune in for Ricardo Silvers next week uh, until two weeks. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five star review and share with your friends.